are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. You've probably noticed that there seems to be little or no good news in our world today. Am I right? I mean, everywhere you look, every person that you talk with, it seems like many of us are discouraged, we're disillusioned, we're defeated. When you listen to the radio, watch TV, go on the internet, or scroll social media, what do you hear? Bad news. Everything seems to be bad news. And yet, You and I have been created. We've been hardwired for good news. How do I know that? Just stop and think about your favorite restaurant or a restaurant you really appreciate. If you like the food, the service, and the cost, what do you do? You tell your family members, you tell your friends about this great restaurant. When you find an auto mechanic, that you can trust, who's inexpensive and skilled, what do you do? You spread the good news. You share about this auto mechanic. When you find a doctor who can treat your chronic pain or your sickness, what do you do? You pass on the good news. You share about this doctor. We could go through any number of expressions of good news that you are passing on to other people. When you have good news, you rarely keep it to yourself. Those of you who are dating, you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or perhaps you just had your first child, or you have a favorite sports team, what do you do? You broadcast it far and wide because it's good news. And you're excited, you're passionate about this good news. God has wired us to be able to share good news. During the month of January, we're gonna be going through a series on our vision and values, which we believe as a church are good news. And we're going to first start with a sermon that deals with our vision, building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. And then we're going to go through our values. If you're a guest with us this morning, or if Crossroads is not yet your church home, I'm going to tell a story. You can sit back and relax, and you can enjoy this story. Now, you might want to ask, in light of this vision... Do I resonate with it? Might I be interested in knowing more and maybe hearing about Crossroads values? But that's all you have to do. However, if you're a part of Crossroads, if you're a regular attender, if you're a member, you, on the other hand, you need to listen up carefully. You need to implement. You need to make this your heartbeat. This is our lifeline. This is the blood that flows through our veins. This is our passion. This is what makes Crossroads unique and distinct. And so I hope if Crossroads is your church home, you'll say, this is my church. 
And I'm going to be about this vision and these values. We're going to look at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings is an Old Testament book, one that is rarely read. Now, to find 2 Kings, if you're using a hard copy of God's Word, turn one-third of the way into the Old Testament. You'll pass Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, and then you'll hit 1 Kings and 2 Kings. You want 2 Kings. Now, while you're turning there, let me just provide the background and the setting. The setting is Samaria, which at this time is the northern capital in Israel. This story takes place nearly 3,000 years ago, in 850 B.C. At this time, Israel is under God's discipline. They have rebelled against the Lord, and the Lord has said, in light of your rebellion, I'm going to bring famine, and I'm going to allow you to be besieged by the Syrian army. After a time, God tells the prophet Elisha, who is the prophet in Israel, I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to take away the famine that they are experiencing, and I'm going to bring a whole lot of provision. That's chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. We're going to pick up our story in chapter 7, verse 3. In verse 3, the narrator writes, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. So here we have, in the midst of a famine, four lepers. They're at the entrance of the gate because the Old Testament law will not allow them to enter into the city. Why? They're unclean. These men are at the gate because they build little huts crude huts that allow them to live and beg for food. So they are hopeless, they are helpless. It's bad enough being a leper, but here you are in the midst of a famine and you're a starving leper. Could it get worse? That's bad news. But look at verses 3 and 4. The lepers begin to dialogue amongst themselves, trying to determine what they should do, how they should proceed. The narrator writes, and they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? Isn't that great? I mean, here they're dying. They're lepers. But they determine, we've got to do something. If we just sit here, we're going to die. Verse 4 says, if we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here and we, we will die also, now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans or the Syrians. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. Talk about morbid. I mean, you think you're depressed? You think you're discouraged? These guys are demoralized. And yet, even in their pain, even in their agony, they determine to do something. So make sure you understand, if they remain at the gate, they're going to starve. That's a given. 
If they go into the city, which they're not allowed to go in the city, but if they decide to go into the city, there's a famine going on. They're going to starve in the city. And then they're going to have all kinds of people angry with them. So they determine there's food in the Syrian camp. There's not food anywhere else. Let's go into the Syrian camp and let's plead for mercy. Let's just pray that they will have mercy on us. If we just ask for a few crumbs, maybe they'll give us something. We are, after all, lepers. But I think these lepers are also realists. They know that if they go into the Syrian camp, the Syrians are most likely going to kill them. But there's also another alternative. They could be prisoners of war, and as prisoners of war, the Syrians would have to feed them. So they're thinking to themselves, we have no hope. Let's trust that if we go into the Syrian camp, something is going to happen because nothing's happening here at the gate of the city. And I think deep down, there's also that aspect of death wish where if you're going to starve and you know you're going to starve, you're willing to take risks and the worst thing that can happen, as far as these lepers are concerned, is the Syrians will kill them quickly. Now, being killed quickly in their minds beats slowly and painfully starving to death. So that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in a seemingly tragic story. In verse 5, the lepers decide to actually act. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Say, what? There's a famine. Syria has besieged Israel. The lepers are cautiously, gingerly, with great fear going into the camp of the Syrians. And as they approach, there is absolutely no indication of anyone in the camp. Can you imagine what they thought in that moment? I mean, this is shocking. This is shock and awe. They're thinking to themselves, there's no way. Is this a case of the Syrian body snatchers? I mean, what is going on? There's no explanation for this. I mean, just put yourself in their sandals. What are they thinking in this moment? Verses 6 and 7 provide a parenthetical set of verses. The authors of Scripture often do this because they want to give you the background information that there's no way you could possibly know. It's the rest of the story, if you will. And it explains what happened. Look at verses 6 and 7. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore, they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys 
even the camp just as it was and fled for their life. What in the world? There are obviously a number of explanations as to what happened. The most obvious is found in the previous chapter, 2 Kings chapter 6, where God uses an army, a supernatural army, to frighten away the Syrians. Here, it's quite likely the same thing happens. Horses, chariots, an army of men frightens the Syrians and they take off and they run for their proverbial lives. What does this tell us? It tells us how God rescues and delivers his people. He does so supernaturally. When things are hopeless, when things are helpless, when people are in absolute despair, God supernaturally intervenes in the midst of circumstances, and in this case, he likely uses an army that the Syrians hear that's supernatural. In verse 8, we learn what takes place once the lepers get into camp. This is beautiful. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried them there also and went and hid them. So the lepers actually enter the camp and they go from tent to tent to tent. They find food and water. They find gold and silver. They find all the clothing and all the silk robes they could ever imagine. They are set for life. This is one of those moments where it's like, I've hit the jackpot. I mean, it's party time. I've got everything I could possibly need and want, and I've got an excess that will take me over the course of my life. Talk about living large. This is living large. Just imagine for a moment. There's a famine. And you are in great need. And you travel a distance. And you come across a Costco. And everyone has vacated the Costco. And you come upon it. And everything is miraculously still in the warehouse. Eureka! I mean, you, you go crazy. You'd be like hoarding everything. I mean, you'd be taking things in that you have only dreamed of because the entire warehouse could be stockpiled by you. Maybe you're not a Costco fan. Imagine Nordstrom, Best Buy, right at Black Friday. You walk into these establishments and there's not a soul to be seen and it's all yours. Every last item. If you can grasp this, that's what the lepers are experiencing. 
The difference, of course, is we live on the east side of Seattle. We have great wealth. We are not lepers living in Israel 3,000 years ago. It is very hard to relate to this. But the reality is we all know what it's like to receive good news and to be granted gifts of grace. That's what happens to these lepers. It, no doubt, is the highlight of their entire lives. But verse 9 is the key verse of this entire story. So if you're using a hard copy or an electronic device, circle or mark verse number 9. Verse number 9 is powerful. Then the lepers said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. The lepers conclude with all the excess that they are granted that it is not right for them to keep it all to themselves. They feel that twinge of conviction where we've been given so much. We need to share this with people who are experiencing famine and who have been besieged by an enemy nation. On top of that, they say this is a day of good news. And yet we're keeping silent. The term translated good news in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, is translated in the New Testament Gospel. Did you hear me? Are you sleeping during story time? Good news and gospel, they are synonyms. They mean the same thing. The gospel is good news. Good news equals the gospel. We can see the terms used interchangeably in both the Old and New Testament in various contexts. Now, why is that important? It's important because when we read these narratives, we sometimes assume that they are completely irrelevant. They're just some wonderful story that took place 3,000 years ago. But in Scripture, the author of 2 Kings and the whole of the Bible, they're trying to draw conclusions and they're trying to paint pictures and illustrations of spiritual truth. So if we back up and we consider the Syrian army besieging God's people, we're immediately left asking the question, how does God rescue people? If we then look into the New Testament, which is where this passage is also pointing, we're asking, how does God rescue people? But it's not from the Syrian army. It's not even necessarily from famine. It's from sin. There's a need for a spiritual rescue or a spiritual deliverance. So this story is pointing to a greater reality, the good news the gospel. But I want you to also see that the lepers are concerned that they will be punished. If they don't tell this good news, 
If they remain silent, they're concerned about punishment. Now, there's that sense that this is divine punishment. God's people need to be rescued or delivered in the course of a famine. And I think the lepers are concerned there could be discipline, there could be punishment from their own people, but perhaps also from God. The word overtake is often translated find. Numbers 32 uses this term. Beware, lest your sin find you out. It's a sin to be silent when you have good news. That's the implication in this text. Back to the story. In verses 10 and 11, notice what takes place. The gatekeepers, so actually verse 10, so they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and they told them saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. So the lepers decide to act. They tell the palace and the king. So good news moves from the gate to the palace. The verb to tell is used five times in this immediate context. Verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and later in verse 15. That is the key concept, that good news is meant to be shared. We need to tell the good news. In this context, we have the good news traveling fast and vast because that's what good news does. If you're truly excited about someone or something, it can spread like wildfire. And that's what takes place in verses 10 and 11. But there's always a dose of reality in narratives. And verse 12 is a healthy dose of realism. It's even a little discouraging. Notice what takes place in verse 12. Then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. So here the king of Israel, Jehoram, who should have known what God had done in the miraculous realm, who should have noted, ah, Elisha had already said the famine is going to come to a screeching halt and we are going to be restored as God's people. He doesn't make that simple connection. The king of Israel should have known better. What's he thinking? What many people think about good news. It's good, too good to be true. It's too easy. I can't imagine that this is how good news would actually occur. And so the king, he really dismisses the good news that the lepers brought. But verses 13 through 16 tell us what takes place. In verse 13, we read one of his servants said, 
please let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. Now do you see what's happening? The king dismisses and disregards the good news. But one of his servants says, ah, I need some good news. I'm willing to step out in faith at least a bit. I mean, he, he covered himself. He didn't send the entire army. He sent a handful of men and two chariots. But at least he acted in faith. In verses 14 through 16, we read, they took therefore two chariots with horses and the king sent after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. He finally got on board. They went after them to the Jordan and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. Now verse 16 is key. So the people. So the people. Not the leadership, the people. The people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel. In other words, the famine is over. According to the word of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha said God was going to work and that God was in the process of working. God's people needed to believe God's word. God does it, and God receives all the glory. So here's the irony. Lepers who were not allowed into the camp, they were not allowed into the city, they actually make their way into an enemy camp. And they find all kinds of provision, gracious provision from God. And the ones that couldn't enter the camp they couldn't even enter the city. In a sense, they win the day. But it's not the lepers, is it? It's God who is the hero of this story. He's the one that allowed the Syrians to hear an army of soldiers, horses, and chariots. He's the one who ultimately fulfilled his word. He's the one who provided all the bounty. It was God who rescued his people by providing good news. For us, the good news is God's provision of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, so that we might be delivered or rescued from sin. This story hinges ultimately on verse 9 for our purposes. Go back to verse 9. We're going to quickly look at the comments of the lepers. First of all, they argue in verse 9, we are not doing right. They knew that they could not hoard God's resources. They were called to share God's resources. In the same way, we have the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not to hoard it for ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for our church. We're to go outside of our church walls 
and we are to share the good news of Jesus Christ because we're building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. The challenge that many of us have is we're not sobered by the consequences of not sharing the good news of Christ. See, in, the fir- in this period, it was famine, it was being besieged by an enemy army. In King County in the 21st century, it's the people are dying and they are lost apart from Jesus Christ. And they will spend an eternity apart from Christ and those who love and serve him. Now you may be saying, Keith, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that a loving God actually sends people to hell. And I'm not even convinced that hell is a reality. You're entitled to that belief. But let me just say this. Christians can agree to disagree agreeably. There are many non-essentials of the faith. This is not one of them. When a person rejects Jesus Christ and dies in his or her sin, it's an eternity in a place called hell which is thrown into the lake of fire. You and I, we can't afford to be wrong. We have every responsibility and all accountability to make it difficult for people to go to hell in King County. They should have to step over our bodies as we're holding on and grasping their ankles and standing up and trying to hold their shoulders, their arms, and keep them from that place. Whether or not we share the good news of Jesus, both locally and globally, it matters. And it matters for eternity. It's not right to go to heaven and not seek to take someone with you. Did you know that 2% of Christians are sharing their faith today? 2%. And we wonder why we have some of the challenges that we do. It's not right. Our mission needs to be to go after lost people. But I want you to see What else the lepers say? They say this is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. Do we believe that the gospel is truly good news? I don't know that we do. I don't know that I do. We tend to want to put a gospel gauge up against the people that we want to share with. And we try to determine how receptive they are. Are they responsive to spiritual truth? Could they actually come to faith in Christ? And if there seems to be that receptivity, we share because it's good news. But if we come across a hard case, we think, oh, there's no way. That person is not going to trust in Christ. They are calloused. They are spiritually insensitive. So we pull the punch because we don't really believe in the power of the gospel and we don't really believe that the gospel is good news. If we believed that the gospel was good news, no one could stop us from sharing. If a doctor discovered the cure for cancer and he decided not to share that because he wanted more money, we would say that's criminal. That's that's sinful. 
When someone dies of cancer, they physically die. When someone dies without Jesus Christ, they spiritually die. It is sinful to be silent. Now, it will look different for each and every one of us, and we will talk about that momentarily, but I want us to understand we can't remain silent because we have good news, and we have to see it as good news, the greatest news in human history. Lastly, the lepers say, if they don't tell it, they will be punished. Now, the good news for us is, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, whether we share the good news of Jesus or not, our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by God's grace through the death of Jesus Christ. But there's a sense of accountability, nonetheless, that one day you and I will stand before Jesus Christ and we'll have to give an account for how much we've talked about him. If we've shared with our classmates, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, we'll have to give an account of that. Because Jesus knows we can talk about the Seahawks. He knows we can talk about our grandchildren. He knows we can talk about our hobbies, our vacations. He knows we can talk about COVID and politics all day and all night. What he's going to want to know is, do we talk about Jesus? Do we talk about him? This text is simply saying, give them the gospel goods. Jesus says he's the bread of life. Just like there was bread available to the lepers in the midst of a famine that sustained them physically, we have spiritual nourishment, we have spiritual sustenance. Jesus is the bread of life. We need to share him. The Sri Lankan leader, D.T. Niles, said evangelism is just one beggar giving another beggar bread. And that's what we're doing. We're simply sharing Jesus, the bread of life. Give them the gospel goods. Now, practically speaking, since our vision is building disciples who bring Jesus to our world, we build one another up in the faith. We think through ways that we can encourage one another in sharing our faith, in giving them gospel goods. We need to ask each other, once a week or once a month, are we sharing about Jesus? Are we going out into the world and bringing Jesus to people in need? We need to be able to share our successes. We also need to share our failures. And if you know much about the Bible, you know when it comes to sharing Jesus, there are more failures than successes. But even sharing Jesus and being rejected is rewarded by Jesus because he's responsible for the results. So all we're called to do is get that spiritual ball rolling. Give them the gospel goods. So we build disciples. We build up one another. And we challenge one another to not merely rely upon crossroads programs and ministries, but to go outside the church walls and to reach people 
by God's grace ourselves, remember verse 16, the people. The people got it done. And then as we have seen people trust in Christ, we invite them to church and we have great programming and ministries that can meet needs. But the best evangelists, the best missionaries, are you. Not me, not our staff, but you. Now we're called just like you are to share the good news with those in our sphere of influence, but many of you have the opportunity full time to impact people at work, in the neighborhood, through your kids' sports, through your relationships with other singles. Go out and give them gospel goods. Now, in terms of bringing Jesus to our world, we wouldn't dare think of doing so before prayer, right? We don't share about Jesus until we've talked to Jesus. And we've said, Lord Jesus, would you send me out into the harvest? Would you send the people in my life into the harvest? You said, Jesus, the fields are white unto harvest. That means in King County. Would you send us? And then would we not pray for lost people by name, asking that the Lord will convict them, soften their hearts, bring them into a faith relationship with Jesus? This Tuesday evening, in the worship center from six to seven, we're having a worship and prayer night where we will pray through our vision and values. John will be leading worship through singing. I'll be facilitating a time of prayer. Please be there as we give 2022 to the Lord and say, Lord, we can't do anything apart from you. You must do the work. Now, I talked about various steps that we can all take. Yes, we want you to share your faith boldly. But for some of you, you may need a baby step. That baby step can be, we're starting Alpha this week. Alpha is a ministry designed to answer questions and objections. Invite someone who has questions and objections about the Bible and Jesus, and then offer to accompany them. Divorce care has already started. We're only one week in. It really starts this week. You could invite someone to divorce care and you're free to accompany them. Grief share starts next week, a week from this Sunday. I think we all know people who are struggling with grief, do we not? Invite them and then be willing to accompany them. Many lost people will come to faith in Christ through ministries like Alpha, divorce care, and grief share. Look for those opportunities and then build the relationship with people so that they might come to faith and that you might be able to share the good news of Jesus with them because they're prepared to hear it. Lastly, and this is so important, if we are to be a church that is building disciples who bring Jesus to our world, we have got to prioritize kids and youth ministry. It's essential because research shows at least 85% of Christians trust in Jesus Christ before the age of 14. So it's not a question of if we're involved in kids and youth ministry, but how? If we're not actively serving, if we're not volunteering, 
Are we giving money towards projects? Are we opening up our home? Are we praying? Are we looking for opportunities to be able to care for people who are bound to trust in Jesus Christ? Our church is also seeking to pursue foster care more aggressively. Another great way of reaching the next generation. The question is not what our involvement is, but are we involved in one way, shape, or form? We must be involved because that's the harvest. You and I have been called to give the gospel goods. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter one, there's an amazing story. It's the story of a leper who was healed by Jesus. And I want you to listen to these words in Mark chapter one. After the leper had been healed, Jesus sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now listen to this. But he went out and began to proclaim, preach. Preach it, his healing, God's deliverance, God's rescue freely, and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Make sure you've grasped this. There was a leper in Mark chapter 1 who was told, remain silent. Jesus himself told him that. But what does he do? He goes out and it's such good news, his healing, his deliverance, that he tells everyone. And he makes it impossible for Jesus to minister in the cities surrounding. Sadly, we are told to open up our mouths and to share Jesus and to go into the outermost parts of the world. And what do we do? We remain silent. God wants us to be like the four lepers in 2 Kings who say, it is not right. This is a day of good news. We can't keep it to ourselves. We need to tell it. Crossroads, let's build disciples who bring Jesus to our world. Let's give them the gospel goods and trust that 2022 is going to be a year where God miraculously and supernaturally provides a harvest of new believers who we can see come into discipleship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that you will bring people to faith in Christ. Lord, we acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge the fact that we are ashamed of the gospel. We need your courage. We need your boldness. Come upon us right now as individuals and as a church family and open up our mouths. Loose our tongues. Give us a heart for those that have yet to hear the good news. And Lord, we pray for those even here in person or watching online who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ. May they do so today. May we as a church family acknowledge our sin, Trust in Jesus' completed work, his life, death, and resurrection, 
and may we cross over from death to life. Please don't leave this place without making that critical decision. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of good news. We love you and we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.